Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, a conversation with the Chairman and Chief Executive of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, Dr. Heath P. Tarbert, and the Chair of the New York City Bar Association's Futures and Derivatives Regulation Committee, Gary Kalbaugh. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar or the CFTC. Here's Gary Kalbaugh. Heath, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Gary, and it's great to be here at the New York City Bar Association. Yeah, it's a beautiful building, as, as we saw when we all came in. It's uh, architecturally magnificent. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Heath, how did you get on this path to being in the area of derivatives law, no less than being the actual chair of the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, that is? How, d- how did that happen? I often ask myself that exact same question. Uh, I think, you know, it, it goes back, my, my undergraduate degree was in accounting and international business, so I'd always had an interest in finance. And then I went from there to law school, and I actually, in looking at your bio, realized that we were at Penn Law at the same time. Was that right? You were an LLM student from 98 to 99, is that right? And I was a 1L at the time. Oh, oh interesting. Yes. Oh, that's great. So, so law school was interesting because it really enabled me to sort of focus on the intersection between law and finance and thinking about policies. And uh, on Law Review, I actually wrote an article, which at that time no one had ever heard of the topic. It was the Basel Capital Accord. At that point, it was of the 1988 Accord. So uh, capital requirements for banks and a large portion of those capital. So is that Basel I? It was Basel I. Okay. That's exactly right. Um, And and there was talk at that time of changing it and coming up with Basel II. Now we're on Basel III and a half, et cetera. Um, But a big portion of that dealt with uh, financial derivatives, other types of financial products, and how banks provide capital uh, cushion against those products. So it was in law school when I took my first courses in securities, learned about derivatives from a legal perspective, having studied them, uh, futures, options, and swaps, uh, an undergrad. And so I thought, when thinking about a career, I said, well, this would be great if I can put it all together, if I can work in public policy, but a public policy that deals with this area. So after law school, I went off to England. I won a fellowship uh, to go to Oxford University, um, and that was a phenomenal experience. And there I studied comparative corporate law because one thing that became very clear to me in sitting in law school was that this is not just a national issue. Our financial markets, certainly our derivatives markets, are global (coughs) in nature. Uh, And then after that, I started as a corporate lawyer uh, at, at Sullivan and Cromwell, Uh, worked there for a few years, and then it became clear to me that I wanted to stay in Washington, that my career, to really have the career where finance and policy uh, intersect, you can go to a couple of different places, but certainly Washington, particularly if you think you want to serve in government at one point. So from there, I clerked for the D.C. Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which of course reviews all agency rulemakings. And so I learned a lot about administrative law. Uh, and now that hopefully has come in handy, but I don't want to be before the D.C. Circuit anytime soon because it means my rules are being challenged. Yeah, don't jinx yourself here. I, I, exactly. But but having that background was was helpful. Uh, clerked also for the U.S. Supreme Court to get a, 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 you know, a larger view of the law, a tremendous experience. Worked at the White House Counsel's Office at the very end and was the White House lawyer on the financial crisis. 
So I ended up really getting some insight into this into this area, and, and not only the rules and how they apply in peacetime, but also in times of great crisis. Uh, from the White House, I ended up uh, doing uh, working at a think tank that was affiliated at the time with Harvard University uh, on capital markets regulation, and then found myself uh, recruited by the Senate Banking Committee in 2009 to work on what would eventually become the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, and so I was there for, for a large part of that. And then uh, went into private practice uh, after the Dodd-Frank Act uh, left the, the Senate Banking Committee, saw things from a private sector standpoint, which was immensely helpful to get a sense of I would think so. sure. how they actually apply. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, was uh, became Assistant Secretary of the Treasury uh, most recently. And among other things, I had the financial markets portfolio at the Treasury, the international financial markets portfolio. Heath, you do realize that is the best resume I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's very kind, but I think I, it's just been uh, been unable to hold a job. But I, but I guess the, the important point, particularly for students and others, is, is that I was able to take this area of the law that I felt passionate about sure. 20 years ago or so and, and really pursue a diverse career based on it. Absolutely. It, it absolutely demonstrates that. And, and the multitude of perspectives you obtained in that journey, which have to mutually inform one another. Absolutely. It's really important, I think, when you see a, a public policy question to think about it from the various vantage points of uh, market participants, of being a regulator, and, and, and also from thinking about it if, if you're in a foreign country, you know, how do our rules apply abroad? So all those perspectives I continually try to think about as we make decisions. So, so you go on this journey, and then you find out that the president is going to nominate you as chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, an independent agency which regulates a multi-trillion dollar market. What's your reaction to that <laughs> when you get that call? Well, I would say it was a combination of both immense gratitude and also immense anxiety. Um, I was obviously grateful. I like, to, I like to say the CFTC is the most important financial regulator many Americans have never heard of. Mm -hmm. We regulate everything from corn to crypto. So the derivatives markets are unique in that they span all the underlying markets. So, so to be a, a good regulator of the derivatives markets, you also have to have a keen understanding of the underlying markets. Financial markets, sure, I feel familiar with those, but uh, having taken this job, I've had to learn a lot about energy, a lot about agriculture, metals, and other markets as well. Yeah. Um, the anxiety, so I was immensely uh, grateful, but I was also very anxious. So I was an assistant secretary, and I had one of the broadest portfolios at Treasury. I was working on financial regulation, which is you know my core area. I also had the trade portfolio. I had the CFIUS portfolio, Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. I had energy and infrastructure. And so a couple of weeks after uh, my nomination, I found myself in Beijing trying to assist uh, Secretary Mnuchin on the China trade talk. So part of my thinking was, oh, no, how do I, how do I manage all of this? How do I go through the confirmation process <laughs> to be chairman of the CFTC while managing the Treasury portfolio? And Although I had, a, I think, a deep background in financial regulation, the CFTC, the CEA, the Commodity Exchange Act, which governs us, uh, is a unique set of rules and, and regulations. And so I had to get up to speed very quickly. That was also part of the anxiety. And this is where I put the plug in for your phenomenal book. I went on to Amazon and said, all right, what is the latest treatise written in this area? And there's not many. There's not many. Your book was the newest one, came out in 2018. Right? Is yes, that right? that's right. Right. And so I was nominated in, in January of 2019. So here was this fresh book. So 
That book, I'm sure many people have read it all over, no, no doubt in the city, but I can tell you that book went with me to the World Bank IMF meeting in <laughs> Indonesia, and it went on with me to Papua New Guinea. Uh, and so I had your textbook, <laughs> the casebook, law school casebook on the CFTC in Papua New Guinea. So it was immensely helpful. But I would say that those are the feelings I had uh, when, when I got the call to say I would be the nominee. I'm glad that I wrote it in time. I, that's, that's very nice to hear. Uh, according to my publisher, that's the only time it's ever been in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> so uh, that is that is very flattering. Thank you very much. And I'm glad that, that, it, that it helped you. So, so you walk into it. You clearly have the background from Treasury. You have a textbook. Maybe that provided a little <laughs> bit of assistance. You go through the confirmation hearings. You, you get the Senate confirms you. What now, sitting in your seat, what is the most challenging part of being chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission? Yeah, so, so I would say it's interesting because under the statute, as you know, so, so there's the chairman. There are five commissioners, so I'm one of the five commissioners. I'm also the chairman. The chairman under the statute is effectively the chief executive, the chief administrative officer, the CEO. And I would say about 20% of the time I spend on the chairman job, 20 to 30% of the time, thinking about what items, agenda items, I'm going to put before the commission where we will have votes on. About 70 to 80 percent of the time is actually in the CEO role, running this, you know, close to 700 person with, with contractors. We have about 1,000 people in four different cities running the agency. And so balancing those two core functions, the chairman and the chief executive, has been really interesting. And I would say the hardest part of any leader in a federal agency is setting the agenda, getting it right. Um, because essentially you have to figure out where this ship is headed, uh, its direction, and its speed. And so you effectively set the strategy. And uh, one of the quotes that I like is by Michael Porter of Harvard Business School who says, the essence of strategy is determining what you're not going to do. That when you mm -hmm. set a course, you're effectively saying, we're not going to do all this other stuff. And so as a regulator thinking about this, I feel like I have to get that right. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about strategy at the organization because that's something that no one else in the organization can do. It has to be a unified strategy at the top. I get a lot of input from my executive team, from the other commissioners, but ultimately setting that strategy, I'd say, is the most challenging part. It sounds like part of that is setting administrative priorities because you, you were discussing the importance of excluding uh, initiatives or excluding so you can really focus on uh, core initiatives is that fair that, that's exactly right so we 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 have sort of five strategic goals at the CFTC um, you know three of them four of them are related to tomorrow I'd say three of them are related to policy initiatives uh, and is a, so obviously ensuring that our markets remain vibrant and and uh, you know resilient is is one of them um, focusing on the end users, sort of making the derivatives markets uh, work for all Americans is our second goal. Our third goal is enhancing the regulatory experience for market participants and encouraging innovation. Those are the three policy goals. Uh, the fourth one is being tough on those who break the rules. And so that's sort of our enforcement goal. And then the fifth is sort of reinvigorating our mission, our commitment to mission and operational effectiveness. So that fifth goal is about administration. It's about thinking about where do we go as an agency? What should we look like? What should our footprint be? Where should we have resources balanced throughout the organization? Budgets, uh, leadership training, all of that. And, that, and so, so it's, a, it's you know, a fifth pillar of what we do. 
uh, because I've, I've found that, you know, per, as the old saying goes, personnel is policy. Sure. The people matter. And in a 700-person organization, you know, the people really do matter. Many of them stay for decades. And so hiring the right people, training the right pe- training, giving them the right training, and empowering them is critically important. Yeah, earlier you had mentioned uh, the importance of your executive team and also – uh, I assume, you know, getting hearing from the staff and you, you know, you're coming into an agency that some people, as you know, have been there for decades. So that must be a valuable resource. One of the things I did. So when I started, Gary, I felt uh, I, 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 I sort of planned out the first 90 days and the first 30 days. I said, I'm not going to make any major policy decisions that I don't have to make. Uh, so if, if it doesn't need to be made at that point in time, I'm not going to make the decision. I'm going to spend the first 30 days learning learning about the organization. So I went to all of our cities and I had about 20, 25 meetings of small groups from 20 to 40 people. So I could meet the entire agency or they had the opportunity to meet we if, if they so wished. And so I basically listened. I did a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. I sent out questionnaires to all the major divisions and, and asked questions like, what are you doing? Uh, what do you think are the most important things you could do? What are your greatest challenges? What do you think the greatest opportunities are? And um, if you could make any changes to the CEA, what would they be? I, I got all this information, and then I sat for the next sort of 60 days and, and then thought about how do I put it all together and set the strategy for the organization. And now that you've done that, you have that input, now let's forecast way to the future. You're, you're leaving the CFTC mm-hmm. staff. It's a very sad day for the staff and, <laughs> and for us. So you're, so you're I leaving hope the so, CFTC. <laughs> and what do you want to have achieved at that point? Yeah, so I look at the role as, as really requiring two big things. One, uh, one, one looks at the past and one looks at the future. So the past is sort of the unfinished business of the last decade, the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, there are three or four big picture things that haven't yet been completed. Mm-hmm. I think everyone wants them completed and behind us and in place. So what are they? Well, uh, capital requirements for swap dealers, getting that regime in place. Uh, position limits, uh, a big topic. Uh, they they, they want to get them in place. Uh, cross-border rules, really thinking about uh, foreign transactions, the extent to which we work with other regulators, that whole bucket, getting that in place. Uh, also, swap data reporting. We have rules in place. Some of them are finished. Some of them need to be refined, particularly now. that So, so those, those pieces, getting them in place, are really important. Um, and then there's some other things that aren't even part of the Dodd-Frank Act. One of the things I'd like to achieve, for example, would be to update our bankruptcy rules, our Part 190 rules, that haven't been updated in about 30 years. Um, because it's really important. It's great, again, when when things are going well and your rules are working. But the real test of your regime that I found out in the White House is during a crisis, do they actually work? So doing it during an insolvency. So those are things I'm thinking about now because the best time to fix your roof is on a sunny day. Um, so, so those, I would say, are key policy initiatives in the past. But I want this agency to be forward thinking. The, 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 one of our core values is forward thinking. So. Apart from implementing things that Congress has asked us to do, I want to be thinking about digital assets, 21st century commodities, changes, blockchain, uh, changes in trading, for example. 
high frequency trading, all of these things that have transformed our markets and get ahead of the curve. And so I would say it's a combination of looking at the past, uh, getting things done and behind us, but also focusing on the future and having the CFTC play a role and I think encouraging innovation in America. Those would be my policy uh, goals. And then as an organization, again, it really matters. Uh, some chairman, or I, I think the, the tendency is to focus all on policy, and particularly being a lawyer like you and I are, we love the legal questions, we it's love the policy. <laughs> but we've got this organization, this living embodiment of great civil servants who want to do well, and I want to invest the time in the people and the organization. So revitalizing that mission is really critically important. We actually had a survey when I came to the CFT. It became very clear. I would walk in the room in these 20 to 25 meetings I had, and I'd say, can anyone raise your hand and tell me the mission of the CFTC, the actual official mission? No one could. 700 people, not a single person raised their hand and gave me the exact mission statement. That, that wasn't saying anything bad about them, in my opinion. It was saying we had a mission statement that clearly wasn't a, infused with emotion that people couldn't remember. So we actually had a mission statement writing uh, sort of contest, if you will, where people submitted mission, vision, and core values to me. And at the end of the first 90 days, we voted on them as an entire agency. Hundreds of people voted on them, oh, and we adopted fun. a new mission statement, a new vision statement, and core values. Uh, and, and so that's something that I think we wanted to put in place, and then those five goals that I mentioned derive from them. So those are things that I think are important. Well, and people are going to remember it when they participated in it. Yes, so that's, that's exactly right. So that makes right. it much more memorable. So now if you test them, they're culpable if they don't know the that's answer. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. So one thing you left out of your bio, Heath, and is that you're an Eagle Scout. Now, I personally am very impressed with that, having only risen to First Class Scout, although I will say I had enough to probably get to Star Scout. Um, uh, but Eagle Scout, to me, that's, that's an extremely impressive accomplishment and shows that even at a young age, you, you had a, a high degree of focus. Silly question, do you ever apply what you learned in scouting to your job? Has that ever? I would say every day. And, and the great thing is I had the great fortune of being absolutely terrible at athletics growing up. So I couldn't, I couldn't throw a ball. I couldn't really run. Uh, and, and so I, while the other kids joined the football team and the soccer team and did all this stuff, I really didn't have an outlet. That became Boy Scouts for me camping, hiking, canoeing, all of those things, a variety, plus the learning that you go through through the merit badge process. But the real key, I think, with Boy Scouts is that a very early age, uh, you were taught and trained and actually perform leadership. Uh, you learn how to lead the, the, the young guys and your, your peers and your patrol, your senior patrol leader, the troop. And so I think that leadership training that I got at a very early age and just thinking about how to do that, how to direct a you know, a little patrol of Boy Scouts to, to achieve a certain thing, uh, that has all been in completely helpful, as well as sort of the core values of scouting, trustworthy, loyalness. It, tr a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. I still remember that to this day. Uh, and and so, so those are values that I think are, are timeless. And so I, you know, I, I, I keep that in mind. The other thing is there's certain formalities that I think come out and play. You know, at the, at the beginning of every Boy Scout meeting, you start with the Pledge of Allegiance. I just think that's a good thing to do. So we now start all of our public open meetings with the Pledge of Allegiance. So, so things like that, it probably comes out. But, but no, it was, it was, I am proud to be an Eagle Scout, and I try to live up to those values uh, if I can uh, you know, during, during the day-to-day -day work. 
I have three young boys, and in my view, if you can guide and lead a pack of young boys, you can guide and lead any <laughs> assembly right. of human beings. I have <laughs> two small boys, and I'm not sure that, I, that I'm, I'm struggling to try to lead and follow them, but luckily my wife is outstanding. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, you're father of two young children. How do you balance your family life, your role as a father and a husband, with running an agency of more than 600, you know, around 700 employees, 300 more contractors? How do you do that? Or, it, or you don't? It, it, well, it's very tough, and you might ask my wife and get a very different answer as to, as to, to how I, uh, you know, how I perform in that area. But I, I, you know, it's important to me, and I know this, and I talk to the employees of our agency about it, is that everybody has a life outside of the CFTC. In some cases, it's family life. In some cases, it's it's helping a, an aged relative. Other people have pets. Everybody has an outside life and sort of a, a work life. And what I try to say is that that's so important because if you're not happy with your your external work, you're not going to be happy with your you know with your day to day job. Mm-hmm. And that um, people talk about work life balance, and I've tried to reframe it as work life integration. Because if I think about the various roles in my life, I am a chairman and, and a CEO of an agency, but I'm also a father, I'm a husband, I'm a brother, a son-in-law, a son, et cetera, et cetera. And all these roles I play simultaneously. You can't really compartmentalize. If there is a problem at my son's school and it just so happens to be in the middle of the workday, that becomes the priority, right? Uh, going and, and taking care of my kids. If I'm, at, if I'm sitting at home at 10 p.m. at night, you know, watching TV with uh, with my wife or something, and there's a market event, you know, my CFTC hat comes on, uh, and I deal with that. And so the idea of integrating your life and making sure you, you recognize you perform all those roles at the same time, I try to do. It's hard. Uh, don't always do, do, you know, achieve everything I want to achieve, but I think thinking about making it work for you and everybody's different. So what I do is... Uh, Every morning I try to get in by around 8, 8.39. Uh, I leave at 5 p.m. on the dot. I'm home at 5.30. I have two younger kids, uh, boys, so they're, they're 5 and 8. We have dinner at 5.30, and I play with them to about 6.30. By 7 o'clock, uh, I am back on the clock. So from mm-hmm. 7 to 10, I'm either at home, but I also go into the office because it's not that far away. So I'll be present in the office. And then Saturdays is sort of family day. I generally don't work on Saturdays. We make Saturdays family day, Sunday morning, uh, Saturday vigil or Sunday morning church mass, Catholic mass. And then uh, about Sunday afternoon, I begin the work week effectively. Uh, and, and so having something like that at least at least gives me um, some schedule where I can at least try that integration. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's very helpful to hear. Uh, and especially the idea of coming home and then engaging with the children and then, you know, before their bedtimes. It still seems pretty strenuous. Uh, So looking at your biography, it seems like you've done everything somebody could possibly do at this stage. However, if you went back to the young Heath and, and you look back at the young Heath, is there anything that you would advise him to do differently? It's a great question, and it's something I've thought a lot about. Um, And I guess where I come out is I would say probably no, not because I haven't made mistakes. I've made a ton. Um, But because when I think about Steve Jobs, who gave that great commencement address at Stanford, he said you can only connect the dots looking backward, not looking forward. 
So what I don't know, I mean, one of the things is that, you know, the mistakes I made and the things that I don't know where I would have been had I not made them. So part of me is I think about the future and I think about, you know, let's make the future better. But when I look back at the past, I say, what can I learn from that? And there's an old saying, you know, as lawyers, particularly those that are members of the New York City Bar, one of the hallmarks of a lawyer, a great lawyer, apart from just analytical skills and knowledge of the law, is good judgment. There's an old saying or something like that, that good judgment comes from mistakes and learned from mistakes, and mistakes come from bad judgment. So sometimes bad judgment leads to good judgment. So when I think about the past, I don't know whether I would have done anything differently because I don't know where it would have taken me. But, but there's no question that uh, everybody uh, in, in life has setbacks, has mistakes, has challenges, and you've just got to muddle through and carry on. That's a very positive way <laughs> to look at it. So what you're suggesting is that it, where there are mistakes, they're not mistakes anymore if they become learning opportunities. That's a great way to put it. Thank okay. you for that, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> so what's it like coordinating with four other CFTC commissioners? You mentioned before that you're the chairman. However, there are five commissioners, uh, so you're a commissioner and the chairman. How is it coordinating with the other four? And as, as we understand the structure works, only three commissioners can be from the same party. So, so two of the commissioners are typically from a different political party than the other three. How is it uh, navigating that? It's terrific. It's actually a lot of fun, and and it depends on the people. And I would say yes. There's there's the there's the part, political party affiliation distinction, but when you have something with that only has five people, it's more in many ways about the five individuals, their personalities, their preferences, their views, than than it is about political parties. Um, uh, and, and in many ways, it's, it's almost like a court in, in that sense, that, that the relationships between and among their expertise, their areas of emphasis, and we've got a very diverse commission. We've got people with strong agriculture backgrounds. We have another person with a strong energy background. I come from a more traditional finance background. Three of us are lawyers. Two of us are non-lawyers. And, and so it's, it's really a, a, a great mix. Regionally, we come from different parts of the country. Uh, so that, you know, we have a couple East Coasters, we have people from Texas, uh, people from the Midwest, and so all of that comes into play. Uh, but I would say that my experience has been enriched by the fellow commissioners. I've, I've learned an awful lot, because while I sort of bring to bear, I think, a, a, a broad view of financial regulation, having thought about banking regulation, securities regulation, worked at the Treasury, worked in international finance, um, they bring uh, agricultural uh, knowledge. They bring energy market experience. And so talking through all of that is great. I've actually tried to do more open meetings. So since I started in uh, the, the summer till December, the end of December, so the past six months basically, we've had six open meetings. That is more as many open meetings as the commission had during the prior four years. And so having these open meetings where, where the public can see us uh, working with one another, talking, debating uh, issues of public policy, I think is so important. And I, and I have a lot of fun at it. So I would say having the four commissioners is, is terrific. Well, great. And it's great to see it turn into an opportunity for transparency Yes. Uh, for, for the public. I, I have a final question for you. Uh, if For a first-year law student, or, for example, let's say a very young lawyer who's considering mm-hmm. law school or government, government service. Do you have any advice? So for the first-year law student, I would say one of the life lessons that I've learned is there are times in life when you need to work 
like you've never worked before. And there are times in life when you have to, you know, you can enjoy the plateau. You can smell the roses, and that's important. You can't do one or the other all during out your life. And smelling the roses is for a senior in college. <laughs> <laughs> Working like you've never worked before is the first-year law student. So it is not easy. Uh, being a first-year law student is the time to pour it on. And you will learn a new way of thinking uh, that will change your life. And I felt as if when I, when I finished my first year of law school, it was as intense as the four year of colleges rolled into a single year. Um, but it was incredible. The other lesson that comes out of a first year law student, which is very similar, is the idea that there are really important events in life that you need to think about and focus on. So, you know, I guess the great uh, poet, the German poet Goethe said, um, you should never let uh, major things be, or, or important things be subservient to minor things, right? And so when law school, you're sort of taught that lesson because the final exam is essentially what your grade is based on. And so thinking about, look, there are things in life where you really need to be on and you need to prepare for and you need to focus on was a key lesson that you learn, I think, in, in law school, which may not be uh, part of the undergrad experience. So that's what I would probably advise first-year law students is, is it may not be enjoyable, but you'll be glad when, you, when you're finished and put your all into it. What about the young lawyer who's, who maybe wants to take a path similar to yours, go into government service? What advice do you have for that? Lawyer. Government service has been, you know, a tremendous experience, very rewarding, and, and, and a lot of fun. So I would very much encourage government service. Uh, I think the government gives you an opportunity to take on a lot more responsibility that, let's say, if you were at a private law firm, you know, you would not get. Uh, it also gives you the opportunity to work on behalf of the American people, which is, which is a great privilege, or work on behalf of the people of New York. Uh, state or New York City if you're doing it at a state and local level. So I would very much encourage it. And what I would say is that people can have a, a, a lifelong career in public service, but people can also do stints in public service. You know, the founding fathers, I think, had an idea that, you know, you would, you would have a private sector life, but then you would volunteer your time and energies. And so I would say that and this is particularly for the millennials out there that don't necessarily like the idea of doing a job for, 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 for decades on end, is that a public service at a place like the CFTC, you can do five years at the CFTC after you spend time at a law firm. You would go back out potentially in the, in the private sector. I very much like the fact that we have former CFTC staff uh, in some of the major uh, companies that we regulate because I know they understand the law, they care about it, and they'll guide these companies to, to good compliance. So I would say that um, I would very much encourage government service. Great. Well, thank you for that advice for, for all the young lawyers out there who are considering it, and, and we, of course, hope that many of you do consider it. Heath, thank you so much for your generosity today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Gary. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar or the CFTC. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris. 